If you're with us online or if you're on social media, we'd encourage you to just share this post and uh, let your friends know what's going on here in Eagle River. It's a great way for them to check out church without actually showing up, which is a great option. So uh, encourage them to do that as well. We are in a new series, uh, our second week of our rhetorical questions series. And this is going to take us through uh, most of the summer. Uh, basically, we are studying the questions that Jesus asked. He, he asked a lot of questions. He was the master question asker because a good question has the ability to actually dig up some stuff in our hearts that we didn't even know was there. Uh, the right question at the right time can really cause us to find some answers. And what we all know is that finding answers for ourselves can even be more impacting than somebody giving us the answer. And so it's amazing in, in all of the Gospels how many questions Jesus asked. He loved to ask questions. In fact, it seemed like he loved to ask questions more than giving the answers. And so we made this statement last week that when you follow Jesus, it's, it's, it's actually the beginning of a journey. It's an invitation it's not the end, but the very beginning of this journey that we enter into in getting to know God in deeper ways. And so uh, a rhetorical question is simply a question that doesn't demand a specific kind of answer. It takes you somewhere. Uh, it, it helps bounce around in your head, and, and it gives you the ability to kind of find uh, some deeper things within yourself. And so Jesus was a master of asking rhetorical questions. And we studied this question last week, a very simple question, do you love Jesus? And all the church people said, yes, amen. I love Jesus. It seems like a simple question to answer. But as, as Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? He said, well, if you love me, I want you to feed my sheep, which is a metaphor for I want you to take care of my church. I want you to love the church. And so uh, I preached three really awkward sermons last week. It was awesome. You know, all of you are looking down at the floor. He's not talking to me. He's not talking to me. Because the statement was made, basically, if, if you love Jesus, you will love the church. You will care for the church. You will serve the church. It's just, it's going to be a natural outpouring of your heart. So we're not guilting you into anything. It just, it flows naturally from those who love Christ. And we pushed hard up against this misunderstanding that you can actually love Jesus and neglect the church. That's a misunderstanding. You actually can't love Jesus and neglect the church. By loving Jesus, you will love what he loves. Again, a lot of people say, you know, I love Jesus, I love uh, Christ, but I don't love, you know, Christians. When really, we as the Christians, we are God's people. Now, we're a mess, and, and, and it's broken, and there's a lot of problems within the church, but in all of her mistakes, Christ died for the body. Christ died for the church, and so we too uh, give ourselves up for the church. And so hopefully you're encouraged in that. Um, we had many, many of you uh, step up and say, I am ready to be a part of this, not to be a consumer, but a contributor in ACF Church. And so thank you so much if you filled out one of those cards. And you can actually, if, uh, if you're like, okay, I put it off long enough, I need to do this, you can talk with Pastor Stewart out in the lobby, and uh, you can go to one of the tables, they'd love to connect you as well. Uh, but this week, we're going to step forward with another question. Uh, does that offend you? Does that offend you? It's a great question to wrestle with. And in fact, we're going to go to John chapter 6. And would you stand up with me and let's stand in honor of God's word. And we do this occasionally at, as, at ACF Church. Um, in our culture, we don't stand in honor of much of anything. So we thought, what a great way to honor God and his word by just standing together and, uh, and reading this aloud. And so here's what it says. Truly, truly. I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread of life that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. 
I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Let's pray over God's word today. Jesus, thank you so much that you speak to us today. Just as much as your words were powerful when you said them 2,000 years ago, we today in Eagle River, Alaska, and around the world as people join us uh, online, God, we uh, hear these words and ask that you'd speak to our hearts. Holy Spirit, would you move in us and put us in a posture of learning and of growth? God, could you rid us of, of any pride and arrogance that would keep us from hearing you today? Father, speak to our hearts. Change your church. Make us look more like Jesus to the world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So we're going to talk a little bit about what it means to be offended, and uh, some of you maybe already are offended today. Maybe you got offended this morning on the way to church. Maybe you got offended when you got to church, and there was like a Jeep on the front parking area. There was a keg of root beer out front. There was some like ACDC playing on the speakers. You're like, this ain't church. I don't know what this is, but this isn't church. And maybe you came in today, and you were like, I don't know about the music, or I don't know about the guy up front. He's not wearing a tie. Where's the guy's tie? I don't know what it is. Uh, that maybe has offended you today or in this past week, but we live in a world that gets offended, right? We get offended, then we post it on Facebook, right? And we let the whole world join us in our frustration. Then we, we actually recruit other people who are offended by what we're offended by, and then we, we get each other all riled up, and then we kind of develop this, this cohort of people who are offended by our offenses, and, and we post it on Twitter, and we write blogs about it, and, and it just, it's a world of offense, and we love to be offended. And so I was thinking this week, what are the things that have offended people uh, over the past couple of years? And, and the first thing that came to my mind was the red Starbucks cup. You guys remember this? Because Starbucks hates Christmas because they, they had a red cup around Christmas time. So they hate Christmas. This, everybody was angry, especially the Christians. How can they do this? How dare they have a red cup around Christmas? That is offensive. Other things offend you, maybe politics. Politics gets you really riled up, your blood starts boiling. Just the name Hillary Clinton. I said it in church. I said her name in church. That offends you. Just the name Donald Trump. I said his name in church. How you doing? I mean, just those things offend people. Politics get people riled up. I'm going to get real with you. Breastfeeding in public. 
That's a big one. It, maybe you haven't seen much about this, but just look it up online. Care, careful looking it up online. But if you look it up online, there's a lot of blogs about breastfeeding in public. Lots of opinions about this. Similarly, we have strong opinions about people's parenting techniques, don't we? Right? About how that person raises their kids, what they let them do, what they don't let them do. We have opinions. It, especially, it's, it's amazing how many people who don't have kids have strong opinions about parenting. Right? I did it too. I had strong opinions about how people people would parent their kids. Uh, people who play Christmas music when it's not Christmas, it's offensive, right? Right? Don't play it until December. That's my rule. Not, not November 25th, 26th. Like, you got to wait till December to play Christmas music. How about when, the ta- when taxes go up, we get offended, right? We get upset that they're trying to take money from us. When somebody has nicer stuff than you, right? How dare they have a nicer car than I have? That offends me that they have a really nice vehicle, uh, how about that person at the gym that can lift more than you? That's offensive. Or, or, or she can run longer than you, or she looks less winded than you. She's not even sweating. Look at her. What's wrong with her? She just keeps running and running. That's offensive to you. Traffic offends me, right? Uh, I mean, how dare they? This is my road, and why are they in my way? They're getting in the way of getting to where I'm going. Traffic, um, maybe somebody doesn't text you back. That's offensive, right? You, you just look at the little bubbles, and you sit there, and you wait. And you're like, I know they saw it, and I know they wrote something. Why can't they hit send? Text me back. And maybe you're offended by that. How about wardrobe decisions? Maybe some of you walked in, you're like, ah, how can she wear that to church? I don't know what she was thinking. Or or, or maybe, uh, you know, out in the the mall or, you know, even, you know, at, at the pool or something. You're like, why would she wear that? Why would he wear that? And you start judging people. Um, how about in the church? You know, I mean, I think churches, people end up getting offended by all kinds of things. It may be the music. It may be a certain way a church does ministry, something that churches talk about. Uh, and in fact, I talked earlier, we talked about serving in the church. Maybe that got you offended because we were like, oh, there's more to being part of a church than just showing up on Sunday. And that's offensive to some people. Maybe when we talk about money, right? If anything offends people, sometimes it's, it's money in the church. Or we're going to talk about sex in a couple months, and that always offends some people. But we like to hit all the stuff that might offend you. It kind of thins the crowd. We do this occasionally um, and talk about pretty much anything that we think could and might offend you. And maybe you're like, well, Brian, Mr. Christian, what, what offends you, right? Um, I get offended by stuff. I've been very open um, about this. Put your shopping carts away. Just do it. Uh, they made these little, these little metal racks just for you, and I know you're trying to keep gainful employment for that one employee that puts the carts away, but they don't need to actually take it from their car. They can take it from... Um, I know it's my issue. I'm just saying. I get offended. I'm like, it's 10 feet. Just walk the 10 feet. Put the cart away. It's a hard one for me. I, I get offended when uh, people don't take care of my stuff. If I loan you something and it comes back broken or dirty, that offends me. I get upset about that. I might not say anything about it. I might just never let you borrow it again and be upset with you about that. I get offended when uh, people act like they know things that they don't. That bothers me. And I get offended when people underestimate me and think I don't know things that I do. Uh, That offends me. I get offended when people get offended. You offend me when you get offended. That offends me by your offense. So we live in a world... Uh, of offense. And uh, some of you have a great capacity for being offended. And most days you wake up offended and you go to bed offended and it just, it consumes your thoughts. And here's the thing, it is a tiring business being offended, isn't it? I mean, it's just tiring business. It's wearing on our souls. And what you need to know is that you are a limited person. 
And you only have so much time in the day, so much that you'll be able to do from the day you live to the day you die. But write this down. Your energy is limited, so reserve your frustration for what offends God. This one little change, I think, could change your life. What if you started thinking about what offends you, what consumes your thoughts, and you you asked yourself the question, does this offend God? Am I offended by what offends him? Which begs this question, well, what does offend God? How would we know what offends God? Well, first we have to go to his word and understand that. If you're not reading the word, you won't know what offends God. If you're not somebody who is, who is surrendered to God and invited the Holy Spirit to live in you and to move in your heart, you probably won't know what offends God because, because the Spirit brings conviction and shows us right from wrong and helps us to see the things that aren't like they're supposed to be and the things uh, that, that are. And so what if you just, you just were to test it? Maybe, maybe something like this. So um, when I preach a great sermon, you guys, because you're so encouraging, you're like, amen, right? Right? When I say something that makes sense to you, you're like, amen, preach it, right? Because you guys are encouraging like that. So just imagine as you go through your day, Jesus is walking by your side. He's with you. And then you get frustrated and you get offended. And I want you to ask the question, would Jesus look you in the eyes and say, amen? Amen, brother. Amen, sister. What you're offended by, I'm offended by. What you're upset by, I'm upset by. What, what's consuming your thoughts are, is consuming my thoughts. Imagine that. And, and, and as I think through my life, the, the honest truth is most of the things that I am offended by, I don't think Jesus would care about. Most of the things that consume my thoughts, Jesus is like, hey, 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 I'm over here. This is what matters. These are the things that are going on that, that offend my heart that offend my soul, because there are things that should offend you. And if you're like, Brian, you're living in some, some other false reality, because uh, I couldn't actually go through my day and not be offended. We live in a broken world, Brian. You're going to be offended. And I get that. But I do believe that you can actually focus that energy on the things that matter. And I don't know if you know this, but Christians aren't exactly known for being people who are hard to offend. Do you guys know that? Like, we don't exactly have a reputation in the community and around the world for being the kind of people that are like, man, they just keep on ticking, keep on going. And I was just thinking this week, what if this is what was said about us? Those Christians never seem to get upset. We criticize them, we oppose them, we reject them, but they just keep coming. But we've noticed that they are really upset about the number of broken marriages in our city by the people who go to bed hungry in downtown Anchorage, and by the hopelessness and depression that plagues Alaskans every year. They are upset about children who have no families, about the imprisoned who have no mentorship, and about the number of people who haven't yet experienced the grace of Jesus in Eagle River, the state of Alaska, and beyond. What if that were said about the church? What if that were our reputation? So if you're hearing today, Brian is preaching some kind of pie in the sky, everything's okay, just act like there's no problem philosophy. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just asking you to consider what offends you? What consumes your thoughts? What is it that's distracting you from the things that actually break the heart of God? Because there are many. And you see them every day. And they're all over the world. Another test for you might be simply this. If you're offended by something, Do you see a clear path of redemption? Do you see a way that you can help for that broken thing to be fixed? Do you see a way to make it better? And are you on that path? Because if you're not, and you don't see a clear path of restoration and redemption, then you're probably just wasting your time. 
You're probably just being emotional. You're probably making something into a bigger deal than it needs to be. But if there's a clear path of restoration, if, you, if you're saying, man, this does not look like heaven on earth, and that breaks the heart of God and it breaks my heart, but this does look like heaven on earth, and I'm going to figure out a way to make it better. And I'm going I'm to serve somebody and love somebody and make this situation better. If you see that clear path of restoration and you're on that journey, you might actually be part of the solution instead of somebody who is joining the crowds of people who get offended with no way to make things better. The church has a different story and a different way that we live. And I think that's what God is calling us to. And the Proverbs speak clearly uh, to this type of thing. I love the Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. It's interesting, right? So if you're a person of good sense, it means that you're somebody who's slow to anger. You don't just fly off the handle really quickly. And it's actually your glory to overlook something, which is funny. You're like, what's, why would it be my glory to overlook an offense? I think it's because when you can overlook an offense, you actually can keep perspective. You can rise above the, the situation and the problems, and you can see things for what they are. It's actually to your glory. Proverbs 16.32 says, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. So if you're the kind of person that gets frustrated, and it's kind of a power trip for you, what the Bible says is true power isn't actually seen in force, it's seen in restraint. That's where power is, is the ability not to, not to fly off the handle and force your opinions and force your perspective, but actually to restrain yourself and to keep perspective. And to be careful about, you know, how to communicate your opinions and how to push that forward. And I love this. If you're somebody here today and you're like, Brian, you got nothing for me. Uh, this is not my issue. Proverbs twenty six twelve says, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Once again, what he's saying is, do you think that you've got this figured out? Do you think that you see things for what they are? There's more hope for a fool that sees that they have something to learn than somebody who thinks they're wise and is not learning. I think what he's saying is, if you're going to be in the posture of learning, you're going to be the kind of person that is slow to take offense, slow to be angry. And I would say uh, the kind of person as a Christian who is careful to be offended by what offends the heart of God. What if we all were to do this, to focus our energy? I think it would change your life. I think it would change the church, and I think it would change our city. So go to John 6. If you have a Bible, you can open up to that. You can also download the ACF Church app on your uh, iPhone or Android and follow along there as well. John 6, uh, verse 47 is where we're going to begin. And some context here. Jesus has just fed the 5,000. So we see Jesus at this point in his ministry. He is drawing a crowd. And one thing we learn about Jesus is he knows how to draw a crowd, right? What do you do? You feed him. You just give him lots of food. And, and the thing is, in this crowd of 5,000 plus people uh, with men and, and women and children, I mean, there's probably over 5,000 people included in this crowd, many of them are coming just for the food. I mean, Jesus is literally just their meal ticket. And it's interesting, I was thinking about our church, and, and, and I feel like we do ministry as ACF Church a lot the same way, modeling after the way Jesus did ministry. Because we love to draw a crowd. We love to, to have parties and throw block parties. In fact, uh, many of you are hosting block parties in your neighborhoods. We love to throw a great party as a church and get big crowds of uh, our community together and have fun together, feed people. We love doing that stuff. We think that's a, a spiritual thing to do that. And so Jesus, he draws these huge crowds, many of which are coming for absolutely the wrong reasons. And then he gives them the truth. 
And what you need to know about our church is we will draw a crowd, but we will always share the truth. And we know that, that when you share the truth, the crowd will always shrink. There will be those who walk away and those who say, that's not for me, I was here for the bread. Um, but there will be those who hear the truth and their hearts are actually changed by the truth. So you need to know that's, that's part of the way that we do ministry. We will keep bringing people back to the truth of the gospel, but we love to have a great time. And we love to draw a crowd. And I don't know why you're here today. Maybe you're here for the bread. Maybe, maybe you're here for the root beer out front. Maybe you're here because somebody wanted you to be here. But I hope that for you today, you can actually let God speak to you and that you'd be here because you want to. Because you've got your own reasons for being here. So what we've got is this crowd of people. And Jesus, uh, it's a day later. This crowd is still milling around. They've gotten their bellies filled. And they're like, Where, where'd Jesus go? We want to find this guy again. Why? Because our, bread, our, our stomachs are empty. We want some more bread. So they find Jesus and he starts to speak. And it gets really uncomfortable. And he says this in verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Okay, so Jesus makes this statement, I am the bread of life. Now this crowd is like, now we get the bread, we wanted bread, and now you're saying you are the bread of life. Jesus loves using metaphors for himself. In fact, as you go through the Gospels, he uses all kinds of different metaphors. He calls himself the door. He says, I'm the door. Enter through me for eternal life. He calls himself the living water. He calls himself the light of the world. He calls himself a shepherd. So Jesus loves these metaphors, and in this moment, he calls himself the bread of life. Now, in this culture, bread does kind of equal life. You got to have food to, food to live, Jesus. And so they kind of understand this statement. There's, you got to have food to live, so there's bread that equals life. But we don't understand that you say you're the bread of life. What does it mean that this, how can a man be life? And this word life, it's interesting. In the English language, we only have one word for life. But in the Greek, there's multiple words for life. And one of those words is the word bios. It's where we get the word biology. And so there are people who have life bios. And bios simply means that you are breathing and living. Like all of you in the room here today, every single one of you has bios. You're living, there's blood pumping through your veins, there's, there's oxygen in your lungs. You have bios. But there's another word in the Greek for life, and it's the word zoe. Now, now there's bios, which means biological life, but zoe is about spiritual life. And you guys know this. You know that there are people in the world, people in your life, who have bios, but they don't have zoe. So everybody in this room has bios, but only some of you have zoe. Bios means your heart is beating. Zoe means you have been made alive in Christ Jesus. It means that you will spend eternity with him. It means he, although your heart is beating, you actually have a spiritually dead heart. You're born that way. But then Jesus, by his grace, takes our dead heart and he gives us a beating, living, spiritual heart. And so these people, they're milling around, they're like, we want some of this bios. We want bread equals life, give us life. And Jesus is like, I am the bread of Zoe. I am the bread of spiritual life. I'm going to give you this real, true life, a life that you didn't even know existed. I'm going to take what's dead and make it alive, and it's going to come through me. Okay, it's getting weird. It's getting weird, okay? Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. So they're like, okay, he came down from heaven. That's kind of strange because we know that, that our, our family members and ancestors maybe went up to heaven, but people don't come down from heaven. Only God comes down 
from heaven. He says, I came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. When he says, whoever eats of this bread, it's interesting, the tense he uses is not that you've got to keep eating this bread. You see, these people, it's the day after he fed the 5,000, and they're back for more food. Why? Because their stomachs are empty. That's what they got to do every day. Every day we need more bread. Every day we need more food. We're on this lifelong journey of filling our stomachs, and Jesus is like, what, what would it be like if you got filled up and never had to eat again? What would it mean if you were sustained forever by this kind of bread? This bread is a special kind of life, this zoe, spiritually alive life. This bread that I give for the world is my flesh. He talks about the world. So now we're talking about like this bread of life that is going to bring life to the, to the world. And you've got this Jewish crowd that's going, no, you mean life for the Jews, right? Jesus, you mean, you mean this, like, this eternal life for, for the chosen, for God's chosen people, right? And Jesus is using the word world, and people are getting offended. They're like, no, no, you must, you must be mistaken, Jesus. You don't mean the world. You mean, you mean the chosen few, right? He says, for the life of the world, this bread I give is my flesh. Verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man... Give us his flesh to eat. Okay, so this is getting weird, all right? So now people are like, okay, so we don't know what he means. Maybe he's like saying we should actually eat his flesh. That's kind of gross, right? Which brings up an important question about reading the Bible. Um, It's really important that you understand context and and you understand the imagery used throughout Scripture. Because if you don't, you're going to end up off in the weeds, right? I mean, this is just basic Bible reading, and I want to I push up against this kind of perspective. If you're, if you're here today and you're like, well, I just read the Bible for what it says. I just read it for what, what it says. I want, I want you to know this. If you just read it for what it says, you're already reading it wrong. You actually have to understand the Bible, understand what's called the context of, of, the, of the passage, what's trying to be said, and, and then what's called the hermeneutics of the passage, which is the application of the, or the exegesis of the passage, which is the application of the passage into your life. And so here's this crowd of people who are just hearing what's said, and they're like, it sounds like you're preaching cannibalism, Jesus. I mean, you're literally saying we should take a bite of your body, and that's going to make us alive. And in fact, uh, over, over the years, people have actually interpreted this passage this way. Now, some people have seen it even that, that Jesus is reading what's called the Last Supper into this, or Communion. So every week we celebrate communion and we have the, the cup with the juice and the bread, right? And I was thinking about it this week. How weird is this for people who are not churched? Like if you're here today and your friend just brought you to church and you know nothing about this and then, you know, Mason, our worship leader, gets up and he's like, okay, so we're going to take communion. We've got the, the blood and the body of Jesus. Come eat some of that. That's just gross, right? I mean, nowhere else in our lives do we do this. It just seems weird. But if you're in the church, you just, you kind of know the context of this metaphor. But what you need to understand is that Jesus is not talking about communion. The Last Supper hasn't even happened yet. And the word that he's using is his flesh, literally his, 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 his flesh. When he talks about communion, he uses the word body. So he said, literally, you have to eat my flesh. What Jesus is speaking about, it, it's a metaphor uh, for his broken body on the cross. He's actually using a metaphor. This is not a literal thing. You don't actually have to eat some Jesus. Praise God, right? Like, because I'm out the door. I don't need this in my life. 
He is actually speaking. This is a metaphor for Jesus, that he's going to give up his body for these people. And he's using this offensive type of language, that you've got to eat my flesh. And the religious people in the room would have been really struggling with this and trying to understand what Jesus is actually saying. Luckily, he clarifies in verse 63 when he says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So Jesus clarifies. He says, the body, the flesh, it's, it's no help at all. So if you're thinking you got to like be cannibalistic to get saved, or if you're thinking you gotta, you got to eat communion to be saved, here's what you need to know. The spirit gives life. Communion doesn't give life, right? This does not give life. It's a symbol of life, but it does not give life. The spirit of God gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And he says, the words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. Okay, so the crowd is now wondering, Jesus said, I need to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood to be saved. How do we do that? How do we actually do that? Well, here's how you do it. We, we know that Jesus in John 1, he says that he is the word made flesh. And then we see in John 5 that, that whoever hears the word and believes will have eternal life. So to eat the flesh and drink the blood, what he's saying here is simply this, that to do that, you need to believe and follow the words of Jesus. So have you done that? Do you believe and follow the words of Jesus? Because that's what he's saying. If you want this eternal life, this bread that gives life, this bread that you don't have to keep eating to give you this zoe, spiritual life, then you need to believe my words and you need to follow my words. And, and, and it's interesting that he uses such an offensive metaphor, a difficult metaphor. I think he did it on purpose because I think it drew a line in the crowd. I think it forced certain people to either side and to make a decision. This idea of ingesting Jesus, of consuming Jesus, because you guys know this, when you eat something, you got to commit, <laughs> right? I mean, it's kind of a commitment when you put something in your mouth. It's kind of funny. Uh, our staff has kind of become coffee snobs, so we got one of these Starbucks Verismo coffee machines and, and one of these, uh, these milk frothers, and we make our own little lattes. It's saving thousands of dollars. It's great. So anyway, um, and, and so we, we started doing this, and somebody started buying these little half gallons of milk a while back, and they were putting them in the fridge, right? And so a couple weeks ago, I came into the, to the kitchen. I was going to make myself a coffee, and I pulled out the milk, and the first thing that I always do when I pull milk out of the fridge is check the expiration date, right? And I realized it expired on that day. And this began this conversation among the staff of, so does the expiration date apply if the lid has not been opened? Because it was a brand new gallon. And so I get squeamish about this stuff. I don't know how you are, but I get really weirded out by especially milk. Like my wife, I mean, she just like scraped the cream off the top and she'd pour it in her cereal. She's the one who like, there's a little mold in the bread. Just throw that piece away. Let's give the, I'm, I think the whole, anyway, it's my, it's my own problem. But Anyway, so I'm trying to figure out, am I going to drink this milk? And so what's the first thing? I open the lid, and then what do I do? You smell it, right? You don't just down a mouthful of this stuff. You, you test it out. You're like, I don't, I don't know. And so then somebody's got to test it. So I gave it to Pastor Josh, and he took a drink of it. And he's like, it's good. It's good. So we, we drank the milk. But anyway, I was thinking about it. It's funny. We, we don't just ingest anything. We're pretty careful, especially in this health-conscious society of what we put into our bodies because we know it's kind of a commitment and it's going to affect your life, what you eat. And Jesus, I think he uses this offensive statement, this offensive metaphor 
for becoming a disciple, of eating his flesh, drinking his blood, because I think it communicates the commitment involved in being a disciple of Jesus. Some of you, (laughs) this is a terrible metaphor, but you're still sniffing the milk. Like, you're still coming to church, and you've been coming to church for years, and you're still like, I don't know. Like, I don't know if I'm ready to commit to that, and I like it, and it's kind of fun to go to church, but I mean, I'm not sure that I'm ready to go all the way, right? Somebody else go first. And I think that Jesus wants this crowd to be drawn in the middle, this line to be drawn in this crowd to determine who might be a follower and who might not. And you can write this down. The offense demands a decision to receive or reject the gospel. I think Jesus wanted to offend a portion of the crowd. In fact, it says that he knew who was offended. He knew what was going on in their hearts. And then he knew that those who would not be offended and who would receive the gospel. You need to know this. The gospel is offensive. It offends our flesh. This, the gospel, the truth that you can do nothing to earn your salvation. That the best of things that you've ever done in your life are like filthy rags to God. That Jesus is the only one that can give you salvation. It's nothing that you can take or grab. It's a gift from God. And apart from that salvation in Christ Jesus, you have nothing and you are, you are sentenced to death, to separation from God for all of eternity. That's offensive. That's offensive. That sounds like singular truth, Brian. That doesn't sound very accepting and, you know, open-minded. It's offensive. The gospel is offensive, and he knew that. So he wanted to draw a line in the crowd between those who would receive it and those who would reject it. I found this quote this week. I thought it was really convicting. It said, a gospel that in no way offends the sinner has not been understood. A gospel that in no way offends the sinner has not been understood. If your flesh is not offended by the gospel, you probably don't get it. If you don't see that there's like dramatic change that's going to have to happen in your life and that you're going to have to go all in and completely commit to this, if you don't see that and aren't a little offended by that, then you probably don't get the gospel. If you're here today and you came to church and you're like, I came to church because it just makes me a better person and I'm already a pretty decent person. If you feel that way apart from Jesus, you probably don't get the gospel. And a gospel that in no way offends you is not the gospel at all. In fact, I would say this. If you're a mature Christian and you've been in the church your entire life, you should still be offended by the gospel. You should still hear the truth of who Jesus is and it should mess you up once in a while. You should leave church feeling a little like, man, I don't know, this, this is rough and this sounds like I gotta give everything and I, I just, I didn't even realize this part of my life that it was an idol and I was worshiping this over Jesus and I gotta, I gotta surrender that to Christ. If you don't walk away with that once in a while, then you are not living in the gospel. Till the day you die, it will offend your flesh. Now, now God will work in your heart and hopefully you will become more Christ-like in the journey, but you will constantly be offended by the gospel. That's maturity. Now, some of you are, instead of uh, being offended by the gospel to the point of change, you just like to be offended by the gospel. But you don't change, right? You're like, you love a good sermon. In fact, you come up to me and you're like, Brian, that was a great sermon. So convicted. And I'm always thinking, what are you going to do about it? 
I'm always thinking, what's the next step? Because you can leave here super convicted, man, super convicting uh, message today and do nothing about it. And you're back to that first person who just gets offended, posts stuff on Facebook, but does not participate in restoration and reconciliation. You always, if you walk away from here, need to make a plan for restoration. You should always have a plan for reconciliation and always have a plan that here's the step I need to take to look more like Jesus. And when you do, and you do that not from a place of shame, but from a place of gratitude, I think that you're getting the gospel. I think that you're just starting to get it. Now, a few things I think keep people from the truth, and I want to just walk through these things. Romans 12, 3 says, For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Essentially, he's saying, be careful how you think of yourself. Be careful that you don't feel like, man, I'm okay here, and and, and I don't have anything to learn here. So the first thing is this, don't let pride keep you from the truth. Don't let pride keep you from the truth. If you're here today and you're like, I don't think I have anything to learn, you probably are not in a posture of learning. I mean, one of the basic ways to learn is to realize that you got something to learn. I mean, if you you don't realize you have something to learn, then you're not going to learn anything. And so if you don't come to church humbled, ready to receive from God's word, then you'll probably walk out of here and I don't know why you'd ever come back. I mean, there's a lot of things that you could do with your time. If you show up here every week and you're just like, man, I've got it, I've got it, I've got it. But it's amazing to me, the most mature people I know are the people who are most easily edified. They're the kind of people who walk in and, man, they can find truth in any situation. I mean, I can just bumble through a sermon and, and, and tear this thing apart. And they're like, they're like, man, God is speaking to me because they have this ability, this humility that they want to learn. And they're constantly in a posture of growth and of learning. Do you want to hear the truth? And maybe you're right at the beginning and you're just standing on the outside going, I don't even know about this Jesus person. I believe this. If you put your in a post- yourself in a posture of humility and you're like, I just want the truth, whatever it may be, and you lay aside how you already feel about things, God will reveal the truth to you. So don't let pride keep you from that. Mark 6, 2 says, And on the Sabbath, he being Jesus, began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? This is so interesting. They say, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took what? Offense. They took offense at him. They're like, isn't this little Jesus, little Jesus from Nazareth, speaking like he knows something? I mean, here, here you have Jesus trying to get out of his own shadow, right? I mean, he's lived this life with these people. In the first 30 years of his life, he doesn't do anything that's that big of a deal. He doesn't make a name for himself. People don't know him as this great teacher. And then one day he pops on the scene. He starts speaking this truth and people are like, who is this? And instead of receiving the truth from the lips of Jesus, what did they do? They got offended. And they got offended because of the messenger. They got offended because they had labeled Jesus. So the second thing is this, don't let labels keep you from the truth. What labels have you put on people? Who is it that you have not given permission to speak truth into your life? Uh, Maybe you're not the kind of person that gives anybody permission to speak truth into your life because you have not given somebody that authority. The label that you've given them 
is that they have nothing to say to me, that they're unqualified to speak into my life. Who, who can speak into my life? And so I don't know what the labels are for him. It was simply that he was just little Jesus from Nazareth. Isn't this just the carpenter's son? Just another guy? Who is he to speak to us? It's challenging. What kind of labels have you put on people? Maybe, maybe labels like this. Maybe somebody's too unqualified, too immature. Somebody's too liberal, too conservative, too religious, too much of an outsider, too popular, too uneducated, too pretty, too poor, too rich to speak truth, to have anything that could help you grow. If we label people, we will not grow. We will not be in a posture of learning. Maybe it's simply, simply this label, and listen, maybe it's this, maybe it's guilty. Maybe somebody's been labeled guilty in your life. They've done something to you. Uh, maybe something's left unforgiven. And because of that, when they speak, you're not listening, right? You've got nothing to hear from them because there's this thing inside of you that you have left to restore. And I would encourage you, if you have unforgiveness between you and anybody else, you are not putting yourself in a posture of growth. It's gonna stunt your growth to withhold forgiveness from somebody else. John six sixty six says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Okay, so imagine this. Jesus feeds 5,000 people. It's this huge growing crowd. He gets them all in close, and he's like, hey, let me tell you about real life. And as he's speaking, people start walking out the back doors, right? Bathroom break, Jesus, right? Just getting some coffee. He's piecing out. Be right back. Just be right back. And the crowd starts shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And people are offended and they're more offended. And they're walking away from what would give them life. Jesus himself. You know what I think they did? I think they went looking for more bread. I think they were like, I don't know, Jesus. Doesn't sound like you got any bread in your pocket. We're going to go find somebody else who can get us some bread. We're going to go beg at the corner. We're going to go make some on our own. But we're going to get some bios. Because that's what the day demands, is that I have some bios. i got to keep my stomach full. And Jesus is like, I want you to want something better. I want to give you zoe. I want to give you spiritual life. So the last thing is this. Don't let trends keep you from the truth. What's the trend? How are people just walking away from the truth? What are, what are people walking towards? You guys, listen. We live in a consumer culture that says, hey, just fill your life with more junk and you're going to be happy. And I was thinking even, here we are on Father's Day. And I'm like, what is, the, what is the narrative of fathers in our culture? The narrative is simply this. Get him a lazy boy, some football, and a beer, and he'll be happy. Right? That's the story. Some of you are like, that's all my afternoon has in store for me. Right? That's what I'm thinking. It's just give me those three things. That's the story. Is like, that's what's going to fulfill you. But you men in the room, you've gotten those things before. Did it fill you up? Was it the kind of food that you were like, I don't ever have to eat again? That was the best football game ever. I, I could die today. I'm good. I could die today. No, like, it's never enough. The, the trip that you're supposed to go on that's going to make all your dreams come true, you're going to get to the end of the trip, and all you're going to have are memories and pictures. And that's going to be great. And go on the trip, and that's fun, but you're not going to be fulfilled. The relationship... That they're convincing you, if you just find that relationship, you'll be a whole, complete human being. 
you're going to find that person and they will fail you. Because people fail us. And they will not fulfill you. Because people aren't meant to fulfill us. You're going to get the truck, the diesel pickup that you've always wanted, and it's going to rust and it's going to rot. You're going to get the house and the drywall and the paint's going to fade and the wood's going to rot. I mean, this is how it works. We're, we're fed this false narrative that, that if you can just get more and fill up your life, then you'll be fulfilled, you'll be okay. And Jesus is like, no. You might get bios, but you will not get zoe from anything else. I am the bread of life. Come to me and be filled. Get everything you need. So what false narrative are you believing today? How have you resisted the truth? What is it that's getting in the way of you receiving from Jesus today? What are you believing will fulfill you? What are you settling for? Like a full stomach instead of a full life. The gospel message is the opposite of consumerism. Consumerism says life at your expense. Go buy more, get more, and you can get it. The gospel is life at Christ's expense. It's so offensive to us. We, we can only receive it as a gift. We can't do anything to earn it. And I believe when you truly understand the gospel, you will be so offended by that in the flesh that you won't have time to be offended by all the other little things that fill up your mind. Those things will seem like little things compared to the offense of the gospel, and then you'll start finding yourself being offended by the things that offend the heart of God. You'll notice people, you'll notice needs, you'll, you'll start having vision for a, a better life, you'll start seeing yourself as a, as a parent and the, 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 the mission you're on to raise your kids up in Christ. You'll see yourself as a mentor with your coworkers and with your friends at school. You'll have this new way of living because the world is full of people who are offended by all kinds of things but have no path to clear restoration. But the church is different. The church, we are offended by what offends the heart of God because we don't have time to be offended by other things. And when we are, we are on a mission to see it be here in Alaska just as it is in heaven. So it's simply, it's clearly like this. If you don't know how to make it look like heaven, and you don't see a clear way of restoration, just resist being offended by it. But if it hurts the heart of God, and you know that Jesus is like, amen to that, that is not right. That does not look like eternity with me. Then lean in. So go ahead, be offended, but be offended by what offends Jesus. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your word to us. God, I want to pray for the person here today who is dealing with unforgiveness and just doesn't know how to let go of it. That, Father, they could place it in your hands. Once again, this is offensive, Jesus, that you have forgiven us. And your word simply says that if we don't forgive those who are around us, we won't be forgiven by our Father in heaven. So who are we to hold on to unforgiveness when, Jesus, you have forgiven us? So God, I pray for just one person to be able to place that in, their, in your hands today. God, if somebody has labeled the people in their life as unqualified, and maybe, God, maybe their kids are screaming truth at them, but they will not listen. Maybe there's a mentor that's trying to mentor them, but they will not listen, God, that you would give us ears to hear and humility to receive and vision to move forward. And Father, today, keep our pride at bay. Keep us humble, we ask. And Jesus, we commit our lives to you and this church to you. We pray it in your name. Amen.
Amen. Love you guys. Thanks.